Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national and global levels. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. My name is Andy McClanahan and today my guests and I will be looking to Westminster and discussing several pieces of draft legislation currently making their way through Parliament, each of which will have significant implications either for social workers, people who use social work services or both. We'll look at what the impacts are likely to be and what is being done to influence the content of the legislation. With me today are Jerry Nosowska, Chair of the British Association of Social Workers, and Kerry Prince, Baswa's Public and Political Affairs Lead. Jerry and Kerry, how are you both doing? Kerry, you first. How are you? Yes, yes, good, thanks. In sunny West London. Very good, lovely. And Jerry, where are you? I'm currently over in Dublin visiting family. So much better. Uh, we're both on the correct side of the RSC. I'll get in trouble for saying that. Uh, Kerry is shaking her head with some enthusiasm. <laughs> thank you for joining me for this episode. Now, before we get into the discussion, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who listens. You are the reason we make the podcast. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email the podcast team on ltsw at basw.co.uk. And we want to reach as many social workers as possible. And indeed, everyone interested in the issues social workers deal with. So if you're enjoying Let's Talk Social Work, please tell a friend or share our episodes on your social media channels. That would be hugely appreciated. So today's discussion, we're talking about Westminster, we're talking about legislation, we're going to talk about how it affects social workers and how it affects people who use social work services. Social work is a human rights-based profession. It's focused on the inherent worth and dignity of all people. It's also a profession centred on social justice. Social workers have a responsibility to promote social justice in relation to the people they work with and society more generally. Now, delivering change at societal level necessitates engagement with legislators and government at Westminster, as well as the devolved nations. And that is something which is very difficult for an individual to do. Jerry, can you start us off by telling me how BASWA works to challenge injustice and promote the interests of people who use social work services at the national level? I think what you just said there about it being quite difficult for individuals is really important as a sort of point to start with that this is a real collective activity for social work. And our code of of ethics, which is um, focused on human rights and social justice, is about individual practice, uh, but it's also about how social workers get together to create the context in which people can thrive. And that does involve um, political activity because we work in a political environment that influences day-to-day social work and also the the life chances of the people in our country um, and, and, and abroad as well. So I suppose the... The way the things that we do are summed up by our mission, um, by our, our vision for 2025, which is um, for social work, for social workers, and for a better society. And we do lobby and campaign on all of those areas. Um, they're really interconnected, aren't they? You know, we want good social work for people who need it, led by and delivered by social workers who are supported and um, you know, facilitated to do the kind of work they, that that will make a real difference in a society that. Um, value social work and values the people that we're trying to support. And I think the the big thing there is that social workers tend to work with people who don't have much political clout, really, uh, much influence, much voice. And so we 
we have a responsibility as kind of witnesses to people's lives and being involved in people's lives and as advocates for them and with them. Um, I think that's the other kind of really big thing to say at the start, you know, to, to work with people who've got lived experience and living experience to make sure that they, they do have a, a stake and, and are heard. So that is done at all levels, really. Um, you know, locally, there's a lot of work that goes on um, in local councils and local governments. There's also the national work that happens um, in each of the four nations. And then there's Westminster, which is, of course, the UK government and also where the English law and policy happens. And there's a huge spectrum of work that BASFA does, which sort of goes from encouraging social workers to take an interest in political activity um, and, and to support others to do that, right through to doing that real direct lobbying and campaigning work in Parliament um, that makes... Um, make social work issues kind of get um, get heard um, and have a voice there. And it's one of those things that's worth mentioning as well. I mean, we are aware of how overwhelmed social workers are in terms of their workloads at the moment. Um, it's an issue that Baswell campaigns on, for example, the 8020 campaign. When staff are so time poor, essentially, I suppose, it's, it's, it is incumbent on the professional association to really champion their interests at that national level to campaign on their behalf, because often individuals won't have the time that they need to engage in campaigns themselves. That is true. And also we do get much more traction and much more influence the more people um, that engage. Um, but absolutely, people's um, time is really precious. And so what we try to do in the association is to kind of bring together all of the um, the kind of the the important elements, the important issues, the concerns that members have, and that wider social work has, and the people we work with, and and have that kind of combined independent influence. Uh, so anything that people do counts, you know, whether it's voting or helping someone to sign up to vote or signing a petition or getting involved in a um, consultation or, you know, for those people who have a bit more time and a bit more active doing the kind of um, lobbying, getting involved in groups and committees and things like that. All of that really counts. Um, but it's absolutely the case that the, the influence that you have collectively um, and the responsibility of us as an association to do that is, is really significant. I think everyone in Baswa, uh, staff and members, you take that really seriously and we, um, we do make sure that as far as we can, that we have the most influence that we can. Now, it's been a really busy time at Westminster over the last 12 months, with several bills that affect social work making progress through Parliament. These are the Police, Crime and Sentencing Bill, which affects England and Wales, the Health and Care Bill, which affects England, and the Nationality and Borders Bill, which affects the whole of the UK. Now, I want to discuss each of these pieces of legislation in turn and examine how Baswa has sought to exert its influence. So Kerry, can we start uh, with the Police, Crime and Sentencing Bill? Um, can you tell us a bit about what that bill covers and who it will affect? Thanks, Andy. Uh, the Police Crime and Sentencing Bill affects England and Wales. That's that's the that's the areas it covers, um, and it covers a whole raft of of issues related to to law and order, as the government would describe. The big issue that Basel has been focusing on on this bill is the way it discriminates against um, the GRT community. Carrie, uh, G- uh, um, the GRT, can you ex- expand that? Uh, the Gypsy Roma Traveller community. Thanks. Um, I would fully recommend anyone listening mm. to. Um, listen to the previous Let's Talk Social Work podcast on uh, the last acceptable form of discrimination. Thank you. It's normally me who does the plugs for previous episodes. That's really kind. That was from May 2021. 
Excellent. Um, um, and Alison Humes, um, Baz was, um, Basil Wales's uh, national director is, is a subject matter expert on this. And I can only try to do the issue justice. So the bill, when it comes to the GRT community, it strengthens police powers to tackle unauthorized encampments where trespassers cause distress and misery to local communities and business. How subjective is that? Um, if someone, a member of the public determines that um, travellers on a site are causing a nuisance, probably just by their very presence, then the, that gives the police powers to intervene. Um, and the bill does nothing to positively address the issues that the GRT community faces, such as the lack of, of um, permitted sites. Um, I believe the situation is different in Wales, but in England, there's, there's no requirement for local authorities to provide designated sites, and therefore they have nowhere else to go, so they go on um, unpermitted sites um, and then they can be forcibly removed their vehicles can be seized which in many cases is their home um, and this is on top of on top of the discrimination that, that they already face as a community uh, many of us will have seen or heard um, negative comments made about the GRT community at some point um, it's all, as 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 has been described in the pod previous episode of the podcast that I just referenced, it's viewed as the last acceptable form of, of discrimination. Um, so that is one key part of the bill that Basra has been campaigning against. Um, another part is about the right to protest. So the government have introduced um, new measures in this bill that limit the right to protest. So if, for example, it's too noisy um, or it's, it has a disruptive effect um, on, on the public. How do you determine too noisy? Well, exactly. How do you determine too noisy? So, for example, um, Parliament Square outside um, in Westminster is a popular place for protests. Um, but Westminster is also a place of work. And um, I used to work in Westminster and it wouldn't be uncommon to hear the protests um, from, from our office. That could be used as a reason to stop protests on Parliament Square. It is a ridiculous reason. Um, people should absolutely be free to stand outside um, uh, the UK Parliament and shout and scream as long as they're not causing violence or shouting something obscene. Um, they absolutely have the right to protest. The government are trying to curtail that. They're also trying to prevent um, uh, locking on. So that's when someone has equipment um, where they can like physically attach themselves to something so that they can't be moved, such as a police van, for example. Um, the problem with that is that... Um, the police have the discretion to decide what could be used to lock on. A wheelchair could be used to lock on. Does that mean that the police could then justify preventing people who use a wheelchair to attend protests in case they use that wheelchair to lock on? A big problem of this bill isn't, isn't just the content, but it's also the lack of clarity um, and the lack of detail, which means that police are going to have a lot of powers to decide what they think is right under the spirit of the bill. Um, that isn't to say there aren't good parts of the bill. Um, so, for example, the bill makes it illegal for a person in a position of trust to engage in sexual activity with an under 18 who they're responsible for. I think generally that we can agree that's a good thing. Um, but the majority of the bill is awful. Thanks, Kerry. Now, the, the issues around the right to protest, they're incredibly significant. Um, and they have taken up most of the media um, attention in relation to the criticism of the bill. But the issues that are facing GRT communities as a result of the bill are massive. Now, 
the bill will turn trespass from a civil into a criminal offence, um, and that will allow police to arrest people who are gypsies, Roman travellers, and confiscate their homes, because it talks about confiscating vehicles. But if you're a member of the GRT community, your vehicle may be your home, so you could potentially be rendered homeless as a result of this legislation. I had been reading in preparation the, the written evidence submitted by friends, families and travellers to the Police Crime and Sentencing and Courts Bill and they flag up a really significant issue and that's that the definition of a gypsy or traveller in planning terms requires proof of travelling. So without that you're not assessed as needing a pitch. But if, you, if, if the bill is going to make travelling illegal, if it's going to make it difficult for people to actually have a traveller lifestyle, then you cannot demonstrate the proof of travelling to even access uh, a pitch, which, which is a massive problem in itself. Now, Jerry, I want to move on to the health and care bill, which I mentioned in the introduction. This is legislation that will affect England only. Um, can you tell me a bit about what the government is aiming to achieve via that legislation? Essentially, it's, as I understand it, a reorganisation of the NHS that then also impacts on social care. And that's not uncommon in our world of policy for uh, social care and then social work within social care to be um pulled along by what's happening with the health service. And actually in that, in that bill, it's, it's quite long. I only mentioned social work once. Um, so the main elements around it are about changing the structures for delivering health on a local level. And the, the motivation behind that, um, based on what the government has said, is around integrating health and care more closely so that people have a more joined up experience and um, ideally a better experience of receiving of receiving help. And there's also a lot in there around competition and how the health service will um, deliver services to people. And then there's some specific elements around aspects of, of how we work to do with things like data and oversight, plus um, a particular part, a piece on hospital discharge. So just before we get on to that point, though, talking about better integration of services within the NHS and across health and social care and, you know, a, a bigger focus on collaboration, it's very hard to envisage better integration of services and to have a focus on collaboration without fully integrate, without fully including social work in those discussions. Now, that would seem to be a missed opportunity by the government. I think the response from, from our members and other social workers who got involved in the consultation, particularly those members who who are actively involved in our practice groups and our committees, um, they've, they were really spot on. Actually, the concern isn't a reorganisation. It's, um, it's twofold, really. The first is potentially a distraction from the actual fundamental issues around health and care, which is that they're not resourced properly uh, and there's not sufficient um, kind of attention given to what's needed to deliver really quality services and support the people who are trying to deliver those so that people... Um, get a good experience and good outcomes. Uh, and then the second concern is, is around the you know, historical and, and current imbalance in power between health and, and social care. Um, and the, the need to kind of recognise that social care provides something distinctly different from health. It's not a kind of uh, auxiliary to health. It's got a particular um, purpose and role. And when you're building new structures, there needs to be a, a balance within that so that people do get both the health and the care that they require. Uh, and social work's role within that has always been and still is to, to advocate for the people who are kind of caught up in these systems. Um, and that advocacy role 
that role of coordination um, of helping people kind of work through the systems and, and get their entitlements um, of making sure that we try and overcome barriers that they face that are not just about um, the particular issue that they're, they're experiencing right now, but about their kind of life course um, experiences and, and the potential for um, barriers to them actually thriving. You know, all of that role of social work uh, needs to be fully um, present and fully thriving within whatever system it is, because that's um, that's one of the things that that enables people to have their rights upheld. And we also have the issue of um, more and more the sort of conflation of social work and social care without uh, the necessary distinction between the two. Um, and social work and social care are closely related, but they are not the same thing. I think one of the areas that this came up really strongly, actually, again, from, from the member response um, was around hospital discharge, which uh, can sometimes be diluted down to this idea that people need to leave hospital and have some social care. And that misses the, the huge significance of that transition for people that you, know, you go into hospital um, and your life essentially has changed. And uh, for many people that social workers work with, that's a really significant moment um, that not only has, has huge implications for their, for their life and their future then, but also may have a lot of resonance for what's happened in their life before. And so the, the social work role that is often forgotten is the kind of you know alongside the advocacy and making sure that people don't just kind of get shipped out um that, that you know, we're really about people's well-being and not about bed space which sometimes these things can get reduced to the other really important role that is often overlooked is the kind of therapeutic role around helping people through that kind of transition and loss and new beginnings uh, that's really significant and i think you know, um social care Overall, does you know, provides a fantastic spectrum of support, and the social work role within that, the, the the therapeutic advocacy and kind of rights role is is something that um, that is it needs to it needs to have its place within that spectrum of support. I would certainly want that people yeah, I knew who were in hospital would would have access to a social work if they needed it. Those issues then of hospital discharge and the therapeutic support at that time. Are they not recognised in the health and care bill? Is that something which has been overlooked? There's a fair amount of discussion about this, and the 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 spirit of integration should be about bringing everyone together to provide the best of of what everyone has to offer, um, uh, you know, based on a person centred approach to what people need. And I think that that's um, yeah, that's what I would. Hope and expect that anyone working in helping professions would be would be interested in the the issue is that there's a huge pressure on hospitals for people to be out of that environment, which is not a great environment to be in, and into somewhere that is um, that's more um, more nurturing, more supportive, more you know, possible for for planning and all the rest of it, uh, and so. Particularly during COVID, there was a real emphasis on discharge to assess, so having people move out of hospital so that you could then look at their needs in a, in a more holistic way um, and arrange the things that were needed. The, the evidence around that um, is that it can be beneficial, because they say that environment might not be good. However, also people can fall, fall behind um, between the gaps, um, be discharged and then not followed up, or they can be um, they can be kind of too... Um, too much emphasis on getting them out of hospital and not enough on 
what they actually need and what's what's really necessary there. And again, that's where our members have said that social workers are really key in advocating with and for people. Because uh, again, when you're in hospital, um, you are potentially you know, at risk of not being heard because you're in a, essentially a reasonably powerless position. Um, so it's it's really crucial that there is the the facility for social workers to, to take on that advocacy there and make sure that the discharge plan is the right one for the for the right person at the right time. And are we are we hearing um, accounts of uh, patients who are being discharged from hospital without the assessments that they need and discharged into a situation that is entirely unsuitable for them? One of the things that we talked about in the committee was uh, the need to have um, good enough evidence to be really confident that this is a a process and a, and a policy that, that will work well for everyone. Uh, the the examples I was uh, referring to of where it can go wrong came from some evidence um, in around following up patients who had been through that situation. And, and I forget who it was who published that evidence. No problem. I will put a link to the evidence session in the show notes. So if anyone wants to catch up on that, they can. Um, you did that, Jerry. you give evidence... Um, it was online, not unlike the the what we're doing at the moment um, over Zoom. How did you find the the experience of briefing committee? Yes, yeah, so I went to the Health and Care Bill Committee last September. Uh, as I say, it was online, and that was actually really good because it made it meant it was more accessible to go along. And what I was there to do was to to answer questions that the committee might have about, particularly about social work and some of the issues that we've just talked about. And it was. It was quite nerve wracking, to be honest, to, to appear and and give that evidence because you want to make sure that you say the things that are really important. Um, but I had absolutely brilliant briefing, both from from Kerry, who briefed me on the kind of the process and the um, the expectations around it, and also from from members, Basel members, um, including experts by experience who've been involved in the the adult practice group in England and the work that's been done there to kind of pull together our position. And of course, we had all the information from the consultation that we've done with members as well. So that meant that essentially uh, what you do when you go along um, as a representative of Basel is you are representing the views of our members and wider social work. And so you draw on the position statement. Uh, so I had really good preparation and really good, really good notes. And fortunately, the questions were quite um to the point they were really they were valuable questions and it was possible to get across the things that I wanted to say good good it is quite a unique experience I've done it a few times at Stormont um both online and also in person I remember the first time I did it it was health committee and health committee at Stormont meets in the what was the senate chamber of the old northern Ireland parliament so big room big round room I've watched it so many times online. I've been there in the gallery watching people give evidence, thinking this will be this will be a piece of cake. And then you sit down at this table, which is the size of a swimming pool. It's quite literally sink or swim. It was an altogether <laughs> new experience um, when I did it for the first time. But um, I find, I mean, Jerry, I know when you when when you're there from the likes of Basel or professional body or Royal College, you're essentially there to give useful information. Often when we watch committee sessions, you're watching either uh, a government minister or maybe a senior official from a government department being really, really grilled uh, and held to account, which generally isn't the experience that we have when we're given evidence. Um, uh, I suppose there's the kind of the, the critical friend role that Basel would play in, in that regard. I think that's right. I think there was a genuine, overall genuine desire for for us to be heard and to give to give the views of social workers and the recognition that that was an important part of of 
potentially weighing up the bill. The, the, other, the only thing I would say about it is that you know, politics is political. So the questions that you get asked, um, you do have to be aware of when they are kind of straightforward questions about policy and when there's a kind of um, more like a party political slant to it because Baswa is a organisation that is about the best policy for, for our society and for our profession and for the people that we support. It's not a party political organisation. So it's really important not to get drawn into uh, discussions or reflections on, on, you know, um, on things that aren't about the actual policy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks. That's really, it's really helpful to kind of hear about that experience and what that was like. And I know that Baswa is having more and more opportunities to influence um, via committee structures, formal committee structures um, at Westminster. And the next point I want to talk about is the Nationality and Borders Bill. And that's another area where Baswa has given oral evidence at Westminster. Now, the Nationality and Borders Bill, this is legislation which will have a UK-wide impact. Now, Baswa's lobbying in relation to the bill has focused on the changes to age assessments for unaccompanied asylum-seeking children and the introduction of scientific methods to determine age. Kerry, can you tell me a bit about uh, about the role social workers play in, in conducting age assessments? So just to clarify, I'm not a social worker and if there's a social worker listening who wants to find out more about the age assessment process, um, there is plenty of resource on the Basel website and also the um, um, Association of Directions to Children's Services has some good information on their website about guidance for carrying out age assessments. But ultimately, if an unaccompanied child arrives in the UK and there is a dispute about their age, uh, the local authority has to undertake a full Merton compliant age assessment to um, uh, determine age, even though that isn't really possible to do. Um, So um, as as you'll be aware, as many listeners will be aware, um, the rights that you have in the UK um, change depending on your age. So if you are under 16, um, there are level of protection that you must receive from the state, from local authority, um, such as kind of safe, secure accommodation, education, um, all the rights that children that children are afforded. Um, if you're between, um, if you're over 16, but under 18, that changes a bit. You might be put in unregulated accommodation um, and then if you are determined to be over 18, then then you're treated as a as, as an asylum seeker rather than as a, rather than as an unaccompanied child. So that's why it's so important to work out who is under 18 um, and who is not. This It's very arbitrary and there is no way to accurately determine age. Um, so but social workers are responsible for doing what they can to try and make a fair assessment. Concerns were raised about scientific methods in inverted commas of age assessment? Yes. Age, age determination, sorry. Yes, a, yes. Uh, scientific methods, so they're in the Nationality and Borders Bill. It paves the way for um, scientific methods to be used. There is widespread unity um, across the sector from the uh, British Dental Association to Baswa to human rights um, lawyers that there is no way to determine accurately determine age, and that includes scientific methods. Um, an X-ray of um, a bone isn't going to determine age. It might give you a few years in which that bone might be. Um, but that's no more accurate than age assessments carried out by social workers, which is probably within a few years accuracy. Um, but what scientific methods do um, is that they needlessly put 
let's say, children um, through a medical procedure, exposure to radiation, perhaps, um, for no medical need, and just to try and, well, from the Home Office's perspective, just to try and prove that they are young, that they are older than the age that they've claimed to be. Um, if they are no more accurate than a social worker-led, holistic, multi-agency approach, then why are we doing them? Um, it, and I get what, what Jerry said about um, uh, we can't be party political, um, but so much of what this government is proposing, we are opposed to, um, especially when it comes to immigration and asylum, because they are contrary to social work um, ethics and practice. Um, so, so when the government talks about scientific methods and they've set up a scientific methods advisory committee um, who will um, determine whether the uh, the pros and cons of a particular method and um, whether they are suitable to be used. There is no known method that is worth it for the result that it produces. Um, and that's before we even start talking about how expensive it will be to just be um, giving x-rays or dental examinations um, to 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 loads of young people and one of the most grotesque parts of that legislation is that if a child let's say child if a child refuses the scientific method that will go against their claim um that will that will um erode the benefit of the doubt that they may have had um it will be it will be viewed as them being deliberately obstructive that must clearly then be an adult because they don't want to have a scientific method carried out ignoring the trauma that many young people will have faced um in a, in a previous country or on the way to the UK um it it does not take into account the needs of the individual at all so we are strongly against that and Basel has been lobbying strongly against it. Now, there have been opportunities to exert influence. I know that Luke Gagan, um, Basel's head of policy and research, he provided oral evidence to the Joint Committee on Human Rights uh, a number of months back. Kerry, you've also worked with frontbenchers um, in Labour and the SNP to write amendments, um, seek to have amendments tabled. Were they tabled and discussed in the, in the chamber? Yeah, so um, along with kind of providing briefings to parliamentarians um, and kind of making our point these are the things that are not good and this is why this is the view of the profession we were invited to be part of an, an, an informal advisory group between the Labour and SNP um, shadow ministers um, about what's wrong with the bill what what needs to change and they were very sympathetic to the uh, changes that were needed to the proposals and age assessments and they put down some amendments that kind of changed some of the wording, removed sections such as um, scientific methods. Um, but ultimately, the government has a majority and they can pass whatever they want. And that's very frustrating. Uh, it's not even like it's a small majority. We might have some wins. Often it feels like we're fighting um, against something that can't really be fought. Um, um, but we, yeah, we have been engaging. We've been educating parliamentarians. A lot of them, most of them aren't social workers. They don't have social work backgrounds. Um, a, a handful, I think, have social work background. Um, and so they don't, they need to be educated on the basics, um, such as when I started Basler, um, about um, why this matters, why it's a problem and what happens currently, what should happen. And that's been half the battle. And by the time you do that, the bill is halfway through parliament already. So it is very difficult. Um, the Lords as well have been have been helpful in opposing this, um, such as kind of Lord Alf Dubbs, who is very vocal on these matters. Um, the All Party Parliamentary Group for Social Work did a roundtable on unaccompanied asylum seeking children and their experiences, and and we got 
feedback from that. The report hasn't been published yet, but um, anyone who watches the, the, the videos of the sessions will have heard um, the concerns that the sector has about the changes in the bill. Alf Dubs, Lord Dubs, uh, he was on the podcast as well. Uh, back, I think it was December 2020. Do listen back to that episode. It was fantastic. Um, Lord Dubs is a really, really interesting individual. Um, really fantastic guy. Alf, uh, as he asked me to call him, so I actually call him Alf now as well. Um, now, Kerry, Recently, the government announced its plans to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda. Now, we're recording on, this is the 20th of April. Um, so the government announced its plans, was it the Saturday before Easter Sunday? Is that right? It was, if I got that right? Uh, no, it was, I think it was Thursday. Okay, forgive me. Sorry. Um, now, concerns have been raised that it's highly likely that unaccompanied asylum-seeking children will be included amongst those deported, um, given immigration experts say that a high proportion of unaccompanied children who arrive in the UK on small boats are being classified as adults by the Home Office uh, by Home Office officials, and that's the issue we've already discussed. Now, what I want to ask is, will the Rwandan scheme operate under the auspices of the Nationality and Borders Bill? So the, the bill hasn't passed yet, it's, so it's not law, um, but... Um, because it it will be the government has a majority. Um, um, what they're doing is a trial of this of this um, of this scheme. But yes, ultimately the Nationality and Borders Bill will back up the legality of what they're trying to do. Um, but this doesn't change that it it, it breaches international law. Um, how many times um, international agencies such as the UN have to have to um, condemn the plan. Um, I have a quote, yeah, it's from the UN Refugee Agency Assistant High Commissioner Gillian Triggs, and she's noted that the scheme would, and the quote is, would not comply with the UK's international legal responsibilities. And I'll just go on, because the Archbishop of Canterbury, in his, uh, in his Easter Sunday sermon, he argued that it is, quote, opposite of the nature of God. Now, I, I read an opinion piece, um, and it, it noted that some Conservative members of Parliament had called on the Archbishop of Canterbury to, to stop moralising, which is kind of a guy's job. Do you know, if the Archbishop of Canterbury can't call something out like that, um, you know, it does, it beggars belief. But when when I read about the, the Rwandan scheme, you know, we're in April and I, maybe a little slow, uh, when, when I read it, you had that kind of kind of quick kind of glance back to, is this an April Fool's thing? This is so outlandish. It, it just seems absolutely, absolutely crazy. Yes, it does. And it's something that has been proposed for quite some time. Uh, different countries have been named as, as the country that we would be sending asylum seekers to. Yeah, so it's kind and of shopped around, seemingly. Yeah. yeah, and other countries were quick to be like, well, no, no, not us. Um, and now Rwanda seems to have agreed. And it's not it's not even that we're sending asylum seekers to, to Rwanda to, to be processed. But if they are granted asylum, they are granted asylum in Rwanda, not the UK. The UK are just deporting um, asylum seekers to a different country. Um, the issue, though, there is an issue. Baz put a statement out in relation to this as well. Again, I'll link this in the show notes. Um, there are the huge ethical and moral arguments against the scheme, but there's also um, arguments being made in terms of value for money. So Baz's statement, I think, uh, says that it's £12,000 to process an asylum seeker claim in the UK. Now, the Refugee Council have estimated that the 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 Rwandan deportation scheme would cost £1.4 billion a year. You know, the costs are astronomical. It's been called cruel. It's been called nasty. I mean, some would, some would argue that this is just an attempt to deter, you know, a really kind of awful um, sort of, uh, you know, worst case scenario scheme that the government are putting in to deter migrants rather than to actually assist people who who need to claim asylum. Yes, the, 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 the problems in the system are, are due to 
to backlogs and they're not due to people arriving in small boats and this policy will not change people arriving in small boats I don't know how many people who travel to the UK through risking their life via a small boat over the channel are are aware of the UK's new policy um, and what that would mean yeah I'm, I'm almost still in shock that this is a serious proposal and that it's happening because it sounds hypothetical it does it does now, Jerry Kerry, cost of living crisis. This is something which is which is the reality for millions of people in the UK. We made an episode on the cost of living crisis back in December 2021, and I think that was before you know the real impacts of energy rises, fuel cost rises had really started to bite. Things have got significantly worse over the last number of months um, for service users, but also for social workers paying their bills. What's Baz were doing in relation to campaigning uh, on that issue, cost of living crisis? So Basler had been involved in several groups, such as um, a coalition led by the Joseph Roundtree Foundation on, um, on, on particular campaigns. So last year, um, when the Chancellor said he was going to remove the £20 uplift from Universal Credit, we were involved with that coalition of organisations saying, no, this, this will hurt people. Um, and merely months later... Um, it, the situation has got worse. Cost of living has spiralled. A cost of living crisis has spiralled out of control. Um, and in the um, the Chancellor's spring statement that just passed last month, um, there was nothing in it that actually helps people on the lowest incomes with their bills. Um, there's been an announcement um, some months back that uh, people would get a £200 rebate on their energy bills. What that is actually is a loan. Um, We'll get it off, um, but then we'll have to pay it back. And some people, some experts are are suggesting that things are going to get more expensive anyway. So so people will have to pay it back at a time where things are getting even more expensive. Um, So Basel has been kind of contributing to to those campaigns and highlighting a link between um, child protection intervention and poverty. Um, um, Poverty makes it much harder to be a parent um, and that and that can't be ignored. Um, and uh, we also contributed to the all party parliamentary group inquiry on um, all party parliamentary group on poverty inquiry um, into universal credit and submitted some written evidence um, on why the cut will actually lead to more social work intervention. So we've been doing a fair bit. Um, and in terms of how it impacts social workers, it on one level, it, it will impact um, social workers the same as it is impacting everyone. They'll see they have less disposable income. Um, the bills and energy bills in particular are spiralling out of control. But also, like when social workers are travelling around their local areas for work, the cost of fuel, petrol has gone up. It cost me 76 quid to fill my car yesterday. Yeah, so if you're if you're a social worker, social worker trying to get around for work, um, it'll cost you more to get around, and local authorities will pay so many pence per mile. Is that is that covering it? Is that covering the, the wear and tear of the vehicle? Are, are social workers and social work students going to be out of pocket? Um, so there's lots of elements here at play for for workers like social workers who um, who have additional costs as well to just the cost of living. And Jerry, just want to come back around to the health and care bill. Something I forgot to mention earlier that one of the focuses of the health and care bill is to provide greater focus on improving health. Now we know that poverty has a massive impact in terms of health inequalities. We know that poverty has significant impacts in terms of uh, family life. 
you know, these are issues that if you're having a sort of joined up approach to government, if you're looking at genuinely uh, providing a greater focus on improving health, you would think there would need to be a greater focus on addressing the determinants of poverty. Yes, that's how it should be. And the um, campaigns that we've been running in Basworth for you know a good few years now are not just about the right thing to do, but about the um, the effective thing to do as well. So the ethical and practical things that we're we're, we're campaigning for. So that that's firstly around challenging poverty and trying to make sure that everyone has got enough to basically get by so that they can hopefully also thrive. You um, That's really preventative. It's really sensible. It reduces all of these um, kind of issues that we know come up across the life course, um, not just because of the direct experience of poverty and the impact it has on your, on your health and your well-being, um, the impact it has on your relationships on your community life, on your life chances for for education and and work, and and on your uh, your kind of opportunity to to live out your your own identity and not be not feel that stigma and the and the discrimination that that really kind of holds people back. Um, and you know, we, you know, one of the things that social workers can do and that Basra absolutely does is to try to stand as a, as a witness to the impact of poverty, which is why we work with organisations like Joseph Roundtree Foundation that also do that, because that evidence is, as I say, it's not just about what's the ethical thing to do. It's about you know, what kind of society do we want? We want one where everybody is is thriving and everybody is contributing and everybody is, um, is a kind of, because everyone's well-being is, is promoted, all of our well-being is better, and yeah, there's really good evidence of the of the catastrophic implications of poverty, and and the cost that goes along with that. The same, I would say, you know, ethical and practical considerations apply to our campaigning around working conditions for social workers. If you want a profession that can help other people, you have to look after the people in that profession, and yeah, there is some traction there as well. Uh, but we are also kind of constantly contesting this idea that you can do more with less rather than that you need to look after the um, the precious resource that you have. And so alongside you know, the campaigning that we do around working conditions for social workers, which I think we'll have to have to increase. And um, we do also provide the direct support to social workers, for example, through advice and representation, through all the guidance and professional development and Kind of community practice spaces that we create for people um, more recently through the professional support service, which is a place where people can receive that um, therapeutic peer support, uh, which doesn't solve the problems, but it does help um, people to, to kind of um, sustain themselves in really difficult situations. And then the other thing that we do very practically is that uh, Basel members pay into the Social Workers Benevolent Trust and that trust provides um, grants, not loans, uh, grants to people who are um, facing really real hardship, um, who are social workers or um, dependents of social workers. And that's something that's that Basel has been doing for, for decades, um, not, not necessarily recognised. Um, but, you know, again, it, you know, we have a real practical role in, in helping social workers get by. Thank you, Jerry. 
Now, we've been speaking mostly about issues where the decisions have been made at Westminster. Uh, when we're talking about poverty um, and anti-poverty measures, there are examples across the UK, um, Northern Ireland, Wales and Scotland. Uh, for example, Scotland has the Scottish Child Payment. Northern Ireland has mitigations in place to address the impacts of the benefit cap and the bedroom tax. Wales are trialling um, universal basic income payments for care leavers. There are really good examples ar- around the UK where anti-poverty measures can be practical and can have an impact. I suppose it's not really a question, it's just more a statement. It would be wonderful if the UK government were looking to those examples to see how things could be improved um, in England as well. It would, and I think alongside that, there are local examples of local government, local communities, local charities, um, branches from Baswa doing, again, direct work to try to mitigate against the impact of poverty. Uh, Many of our members are really actively involved in local campaigning and local provision of support. And um, and that's across the whole of the UK. I do think that we have a, a real kind of um, boost from being a UK organisation that we, when we're lobbying in Westminster about UK matters, we can draw on the best from across the UK. And when we're lobbying in Westminster on England matters, um, you know, those times when we have a, um, a government that's putting through policies that are not as good in terms of ethics, human rights, social justice, as we find in, in other parts of the UK, we can point to those. Um, it's not theoretical that this is an alternative. It's so you can look at what's actually happening in another place um, and the impact that that's having. So most of what we've discussed so far has been about lobbying at Westminster through formal committees or directly with members of parliament and peers. But Baswell also does a lot of work um, with the all-party parliamentary group on social work. All-party parliamentary groups, those may not be something that listeners are familiar with. Kerry, can you tell me a bit about what APPGs are and what the APPG on social work does? Yes. um, So all-party parliamentary groups are cross-party groups in parliament in which Peers, so lords and MPs can be members. Um, many of them facilitate public um, access in terms of attending meetings and events and inquiries. But um, to be a member of the APPG, you have to be a lord or a um, or an MP. So um, what they do is you have you might have an APPG on pretty much any subject. There are APPGs for countries, for issues such as social work um, or causes, campaigns, illnesses. Um, it, it's a pretty broad um, uh, broad criteria to set up an APPG. I think there's an APPG on cheese, I think. That, that wouldn't surprise me. There's an APPG on wrestling. <laughs> Is there um, really? So, right. yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, there's, there's, there's I want to go to that one. <laughs> um, so... So yes, yeah, so APPGs, there's, there's lots of them. There's a register somewhere online if people are really interested. So the APPG for social work, um, BASWA are the secretariat for that. So we kind of provide admin support um, through me. So I do that. I'm allocated to the APPG several hours a week. Um, and um, we raise the profile of social work and, and look at so, um, issues that affect social workers. So over the past year, 
Um, we have carried out three inquiries, one on the integration of health and social care, led by Barbara Keeley MP, who's a co-chair. Uh, experiences of unaccompanied asylum-seeking children, which was chaired by our other co-chair, David Simmons MP. And models of children's social work, which was chaired by David Simmons MP. All three of these are written and um, in the pipeline to be published. They have not yet been. Um, and we'll do launches about the findings for these. Um, so what's important to remember about APBGs is that... Um, Although BASRA is the secretariat to the APPG, we don't run it. It's not ours. We don't control uh, what comes out of it or, or what they do. We just provide support um, to make sure that what they want to do happens. And we, of course, have some influence with that. Um, so, yes, an APPG for everything, as long as there's enough MPs to want to do it. And I know that a lot of people, their their impression of Westminster is Prime Minister Questions Time, uh, a really yaboo sort of type of politics. My understanding of APPGs is that it's much more collaborative. People are there together to work on an issue. So the, the cross-party working is more evident. Would that be a fair enough understanding? Absolutely, because um, they're not they're not for theatre or for show. Um, so the APPG for Social Work has a Conservative co-chair and a Labour co-chair. Um, so it's about bringing um, the issues to the table, not, not the political fight. Um, so there will be things that, for example, um, our two co-chairs disagree on. Um, but the purpose is that we then we take the politics out of it almost and we look at and it's more of a results evidence driven um, group. Um, so which 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 can be challenging because you can't take the MP out of their party. Um, they have political beliefs and uh, an ideological view. Um, and so it can be quite challenging having a co-chair system. There was also a meeting recently with the Secretary of State for Education. That was pretty significant. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so um, Kat Smith, MP, um, who used to work for Balsua. Um, used to do your job, is that right? She used to do yeah. my job, yeah. I yeah. think a, f- a few predecessors before. Um, yes, so she, during the debate on um, the death of Arthur Libinjo Hughes, um, Kat Smith got up and asked the Minister or Secretary of State whether he would meet with Balsua to discuss um, the pressures that are on social work. And he said yes. Um, and when they say yes in, in Parliament, when it's recorded like that, they have to stick to it. Um, so we had a um, Kat Smith secured a meeting with, with the Secretary of State for Education, Adim Zahawi. And um, a couple of months ago now, um, myself and Chief Executive Ruth Allen attended the Department for Education and, and we met with him along with Kat Smith um, and kind of talked about the, the pressures of the workforce facing um and and kind of what needs to be done and he he was a very nice man very charming man um didn't commit to much um but i wouldn't have expected him to but it means that Basel's concerns as very much a voice of the profession um were heard and that now paves the way for a for a positive relationship going forward and that is largely what what public affairs is about is we want to be invited to the table we want to be involved in these discussions we want to be listened to when it comes to policy development and so the meeting was a, was a great way to, to to create that absolutely i mean i know that from working at stormont it is about having your voice heard it is about the incremental change it's not necessarily about delivering everything you want in one go but um always being on the government's radar being on the radar of the relevant committees, being called to give evidence, it shows just how much influence Baz was starting to have, and that's fantastic. Now, Jerry, for members who want to get more involved in the association's work to affect change, and also for that part, for social workers who aren't yet members of Baswa, um, and who might be thinking of joining the association, in what ways can they feed into Baswa's campaign activities? The first thing that I would say is to all social workers is to 
keep being political, you stay political, it is a really important strength of social work that we're not just concerned with doing an individual job. Um, We are really concerned about the kind of place that we live and the kind of communities that we have and the kind of world that that we're creating. Um, And we have that sort of um, understanding from the theory and evidence that supports social work that actually you can change those things. Um, there is there is scope to change them. So in terms of how you go about influencing politics and the society that we live in, I think um, keep yourself informed, first of all. So there was really good information coming out of Baswa. Uh, Kerry does a blog. Um, there's various other updates and things that you can, you can get involved in. Of course, if you're a member, you are helping directly to support the activity that we're doing. And it carries a lot of weight for us to be able to say we have 22,000 members. Um, wouldn't it be great if we could say we had 50,000 or 100,000? And I think that um, if you want to then, or if you're able to be given a little bit more time, if you've got a few minutes, you can sign a petition. Um, if you've got a little bit more, you can write to a member of parliament and they have to answer you. They do actually pay attention to the things that, that we send. We quite often put out templates and things to members. Again, if you can say from Baswa, you know, so if I can say from a lead member perspective, we've written to our MPs, um, this many members have written, this many members have signed something, that makes a really big difference. Uh, we, we do put out a lot of consultations, uh, a lot of surveys. That can be um, a bit taxing for people to find the time to fill them in. They're usually quite short. You may be 10 to 20 minutes. Um, but again, us being able to say so many people have responded, these are the views, the direct comments that we get from social workers um, are just so valuable. When I went to the Health and um, Care Bill Committee, I was using direct quotes, um, you know, social workers in practice say this, um, experts by experience who are involved in BASF have said this to us. It makes so much more, um, has so much more impact. Um, and then, you know, if you have got um, the scope, joining a group in Baswa. Um, coming along to an event where we're gathering views um, or, you know, if you're able to get involved in a committee or indeed in council, we have regular uh, elections and appointments coming up. You know, those, those are places where you can really um, put your expertise um, to, to the best possible use. And I suppose the final thing I would say is just, you know, keep optimistic about this stuff because uh, I get asked quite a lot about you know, what difference does battle make what, make and what impact do we have politically? And I would say that we have less influence than we'd want, but a lot more than most people realise. Um, and some of that is quite hidden. A lot of social work work is, is hidden. You know, we, we influence people through relationships and through the, um, the work that's done to inform and support understanding and help people kind of think about things and think about change before you ever see the change. Uh, sometimes, of course, we have huge impacts straight away. Um, some of the work that we do, um, the campaigning is, is hugely successful and partnership work that we do, you can see that direct influence, but some of it is a lot slower. And so you just got to trust based on your know, experience that these things are worth doing and they do make a difference in the end. Um, your governments come and go, but the profession has been around for a really long time. And when we contest something, even if we're not successful, that is part of the public record. It's part of the public discourse. And we can come back to that um, and push that again and again and again. Um, and as the political environment changes, and it always does, then we've got this kind of um, path that we can show to the next um, group of leaders. 
And so if you don't, if you don't get your um, concerns or your issues or your questions on the record, then it's much harder to influence in the future. So everything that we're doing is worth doing, even if it doesn't have the immediate effect. Thank you, Jerry. Some change is massive and significant. Some change is incremental and it is no less significant for that. Thank you so much for joining me, Kerry. Thanks for being with us as well. I've really enjoyed talking to you both. Thanks for having me. Thank you.